0: Welcome to HBTV, I'm a philosopher who advocates Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism and uh, every Monday I take up questions from a unique and controversial perspective and today you know, Nikos we have a special format.
1: Yes, today is a Q&A so as we said in the past, members of Iron Rand Center UK have priority on sending written questions before the show. So we have a queue of these questions and Harry's going to address them today. We will try also to address super chat questions. So feel free to send your two super chats and we're going to do our best to for Harry to answer all of them. So without further delay, let's jump in because there are many questions and very good questions. Question number one. The context that for our friend is how to apply objectivism in today's world. And he asks, or see, can you share advice on how best to live as an objectivism as an objectivist in a mixed economy with significant and expanding governmental control? In particular, where to comply
0: and when to dissent. Always dissent. Dissent is a matter of expressing your viewpoint when it is not rude, uncalled for, inappropriate to do that. I mean, you don't go up to people, hi, I'm Harry Binswanger, I don't agree with these immigration controls, or whatever it is. Uh, But dissent means, uh, it means to state your disagreement. So you should always do that. Never self-censor. Comply virtually always comply because they've got the guns. How to best live as an objectivist in a mixed economy with significant? Well, several, um, several things. One is hire lawyers if you're in business. Uh, the other is actually to dissent, be outspoken. They don't go after the outspoken ones. If you read Atlas Shrugged, you see the story of when Hank Reardon began to denounce the government, they were afraid to go after him. Now, you have to do this as a mature, civilized adult, stating reasons, not as as some um, embarrassing, wild-eyed kid. Okay, so if you're a kid, you have to learn some more, probably. But uh, the other thing I would say is get hooked into the objectivist community. But I want to warn about something about that. In other words, I do um, uh, have uh, friendships and, and relationships with people who aren't objectivists. But most of my time is spent talking to objectivists. And that's a better situation if they're real objectivists. Um, The other thing is that if you're a businessman hiring someone, do not use adherence to objectivism as your hiring criterion. If you have two people who are equally qualified and equally innovative and thoughtful and so forth, and one of them is in agreement with the philosophy, he says, okay, You might want to throw the balance to that. But I know a lot of, uh, or several cases of businessmen and entrepreneurs who thought it would be a good idea to hire people who call themselves objectivists. And it isn't. It's some combination of they're not really objectivists and they'll cheat you. I've seen that happen more than once. And they are objectivists, but they're not that bright or that innovative or that dedicated so uh don't tip the scales with if you're hiring to hire an objectivist but in terms of who you want to talk to and spend time to uh, time with i would um, find people you like who also agree with your ideas question number two
1: what does the identity of consciousness mean? If our consciousness perceived reality in a particular way, wouldn't
0: that imply subjectivism? Well, this is like the question of questions. Easy to answer, though, but that you're asking this question is a good sign. Let's take the second part first because I think it, needs to be put to rest before we get the first part. If our consciousness perceived reality in a particular way, wouldn't that imply subjectivism? Well let's let's apply that to thermometers. If a thermometer registers the heat in a particular way, wouldn't that make it not really measuring the heat, but only the heat as an alcohol thermometer? registers it, or an al- a dis- mercury thermometer or a digital thermocouple, uh, if we um, set up radar installation to detect incoming missiles, we can't have it use a particular material on a particular frequency and ha- operated a specific uh, power rating and so forth, because any of those particular items of identity would disqualify the radar. It has to operate as radar in general. In fact, even radar is just one way of a particular way of gaining information about reality. Why isn't it LIDAR? Why isn't it sonar? Why isn't it visual you know, uh, image processing. So the uh, our, the question you raise is the question that Kant raised. And of course, he didn't really raise it. It's the answer that he gave. Because our consciousnesses work in a specific way, they can't see reality, only the reality as it's uh, understood in that way or or. Perceived in that way. And that is the fundamental error in the last 200 years. That's, that's what's behind, say, critical race theory. That's what's behind Trump. That's what's behind everything that's wrong with the modern world. The idea that your mind is not capable, capable of knowing reality because it's your mind. It can't work because it works somehow. Only if it worked know-how, by no specific means, would it be valid. But what is the standard you're applying? Plato. Or even worse, uh, the religion. Only if we had a revelation know-how could we trust it. But since we see the world through our senses and think the world through our minds, we can't trust it. Ayn Rand gave the immortal description of this view, the kind of expose. Man is blind because he has eyes. He's deaf because he has ears. The means of awareness is your means of awareness. It's not something blocking you from awareness. And every means is a specific means. So again, another analogy I like to give is: we can't really get to New York City. We can only get to New York City as it is when you land at JFK, or New York City as it is when you drive to it on I-95, or New York City as it is when you de- um, get off your disembark your boat when you land on the piers. We can't get to the real New York City. Only the New York City has reached by particular way. Well, of course, that's absurd. The ways are all ways of reaching the same thing. Eyes and ears and bat echolocation are organs for knowing reality. They're different ways of contacting reality, but they are what enable the organism to perceive reality. I think part of this is uh, the word subjectivism. The, the wording here is, if our consciousness perceived reality in a particular way, wouldn't that imply subjectivism? What do you mean by subjectivism? Subjectivism means, in philosophy, the idea that reality has no identity except what we give it. Wishes make it so. Ignorance is blessed. If I don't see it, it's not there. What you don't know can't hurt you. Getting it out of your mind gets it out of being. To be is to be perceived, said Bishop Barclay. Esse est percipi, To be is to be perceived. And, of course, this is the uh, operating uh, slogan of, of a schizophrenic or psychotic they believe that their consciousnesses control reality. So subjectivism is the idea that there's no reality out there. There's just our uh, internal states, our minds are cut off from reality. Well, how do you know there is a reality or a mind, if that's true? So uh, subjectivism does not mean well, everybody has his own slant on things, which could be an innocuous, even a pleasant statement. Pleasant in the sense of uh, people are a little bit different. They see things in a different way. They come to a little bit different conclusions. They don't necessarily contradict each other, but uh, it's it's nice that everyone does not have exactly the same values and exactly the same thoughts we're not all robots vocalizing in unison so that kind of subjectivism is not a problem but if it, but subjectivism in philosophy and as i think the question means it is there is no truth there's only your truth and his truth but actually if there's only your truth there is no him Subjectivism, consist- to be semi-consistent, has to say, well, there are- I don't know if there are any other people or consciousness, they're just images in my mind. I don't know what's out there, if there are any. Uh, so it's-, it's the subject without the object, but it's self-evident that you have a subject knowing an object. Go ahead.
1: And here's a follow-up that we, that we received. What is consciousness if it's not matter that we know follows simply? Right, well, that's
0: a different question, Nico, so let's get that later. Because the first part of the question, what does the identity of consciousness mean? So I, uh, the idea, just, just to summarize, the idea that perception by means is non-perception is a contradictory and baseless claim. Okay, what does the identity of consciousness mean? It means three things broadly free will for conceptual consciousness, free will. Second, that the senses are the basis of all further knowledge. An animal can't go further than its senses, but human beings can apply logic to process sensory material, and that's reason. And the third thing is something that Ayn Rand uh, bases their whole epistemology on, the principle of unit economy. You can only hold so much material in conscious, full conscious focus at once. So for instance, if you're presented with uh, a deck of cards, two decks of cards, and imagine them spread out on a table. One of them has a card missing. You can't just look at that and say, oh, this one has 51 cards, that one has 52, so there's something missing from this stick. You have to count them. On the other hand, I'm now holding up different quantities of fingers in one hand and the other hand. You don't need to count those. That's perceptually given, but beyond about six, You can't distinguish visually anymore uh, the difference between quantities. I have trouble with six. Now, I mean, six that are not neatly arranged for you and lined up one with the other, but like imagine a a bowl of seven peas all mixed together and a bowl of uh, seven pencils or six pencils. It wouldn't be in a bowl, would it? A pencil holder of six pencils, you can't grasp on the perceptual level which one has more. I mean, maybe you can if you're really good, but I can't do that. But two Ps versus one pencil or the other way around, we can all get. So there's a need to reduce the number of units that are held in awareness at a given time. And that's the whole key to human psychoepistemology, she calls it, the man's conceptual level of functioning. All through and through is about reducing the number of units you have to hold in mind so that you can hold things wholesale, not retail. So for instance, a table, one word, that brings up information about every one of the millions or hundreds of millions of tables. You, I don't know if you encounter hundreds of but that there have been made billions probably that there have been made and will ever be made. So it is a process of um, expanding the range of awareness by reducing the number of units, letting some units stand for an unlimited number of others. That's what an abstraction or concept is. So those are the three things that the identity of consciousness means that I can think of after some consideration to this topic. Free will for human beings in their use of reason. Perception is the base and source of all information. That is sensory observation. And... The principle of unit economy reducing the need to reduce to economize on units, so that's what it means, and uh none of those turns anything subjective. you want to do the follow up or yes can,
1: let's do the the follow up so sure. the follow up asks that the it starts in the same way what is consciousness, but then says. If it's not a matter that we know follows simple cause and effect, then what is it made of? So what is consciousness made of, is, if not a simple matter that follows cause and effect?
0: Look at all the assumptions built into that question. It assumes consciousness is made of something. I think the reason why consciousness has free will is that it isn't made of anything. What things are made of is physical stuff. Consciousness is an activity. It's not made of stuff. It's not a thing in your head. It's not your brain. Consciousness is seeing, smelling, tasting, imagining, desiring. It's all, it's all actions. Thinking, deducing, defining, smelling—it's all those actions. Those are all actions of consciousness. Consciousness is just an umbrella term for all those things. Uh, now, the if—if uh, if they're not made of matter, well, to be made of is to matter. Is that which makes up things? So. And the way of saying it is, if it's not a thing, what is it? Well, it's an activity of an organism, but beyond that, I can't say. It's indefinable. Or it's definable only ostensibly, meaning by giving examples, as I did, seeing, smelling, hearing, thinking, deducing. All those are actions of you, of your consciousness. And uh, you can't reduce the state of, you know, what, what about the the raw inner state that is all those things? You can't break that down into anything else because the two big primaries in reality are existence, the thing you know, the world, the universe, and consciousness, your activity of grasping, imagining, even evading that thing, that existence. So it's, it's one of the two basic um, phenomena in the universe. Um, and you can't reduce one to the other. So it is, no, it's not matter. Matter is the stuff. We think it's ultimately quarks, or in my day, it was protons, electrons, and other subatomic particles. Now it's quarks that make up the universe make up things in the universe, physical, touchable things. And consciousness is not a thing. It's an activity of a living organism. And that is the answer to the free will thing that we're uh, a question that we're going to get into in a minute. So you check your premises.
1: Okay. So let's have a look at the super chats. Thank you, Marilyn, Robert. Uh, So Marilyn mentions related to what you said earlier about employment that in her early 20s she disagreed. She disagreed with your boss about something. She said, "And she said, I don't think it's the right way to handle it. But you're the boss, so I'll do what you say." He wanted me to agree, not just to do it. And in a way, that's a good thing. In a, that, the, your boss wants you to understand what. Yeah.
0: Now that's yeah. a different thing. In, in all. Um... In all your knowledge and thinking, you have to distinguish force versus cooperation. So when I said dissent, I had in mind, as I think the questioner did, dissent with government regulations and rules and laws. I didn't mean dissent from somebody, say, who believes in God. Uh, Even then, you shouldn't... uh, if somebody tries to get you to agree with his wrong view, whatever it is, that uh, creamy peanut butter is more tasty than crunchy peanut butter. I mean, that's about as subjective as you can get, but uh, I wouldn't agree to that. But it doesn't mean I'm out grabbing people by the collar and saying, listen, you've got to use chunky peanut butter my wife likes creamy peanut butter not chunky and we get along fine because that is an optional thing but um let's say um try to think of something in computers that i have a view on that's not uh, um well i think usb c is better than usb a or b and i think they're poorly designed us all of them plugs are very poorly designed I wouldn't withhold that information, but that's not what we're talking about when we talk about dissent. We're talking about the government says everyone must uh, stay in their homes and not go out because there's COVID. I think, you know, pretty far-fetched, but that could happen, right? Comply unless you can get away with it. But don't say you agree with it when you don't. Now if your boss wants you, your boss is someone that you've chosen to do work for in exchange for payment. He's not your boss, you know, in the sense of a the policeman and the congress are your bosses to an astonishing extent today. They shouldn't be. But the person you that hired you and can fire you is in a very different category you have chosen to work with him now he may or may not want to understand your viewpoint on things that's his prerogative he's paying he's paying you so uh i i understand that there are cases where bosses are irrational, where they i don't want to hear it don't tell me just do it my way And there are cases where the boss is rational and is saying, look, there's probably seven different ways of doing it. Yours may be slightly better, but I don't have time to investigate all these things. It's not going to make that much difference. So let's move on. I haven't got time. Uh, Or anywhere in between, you know, or or it could be any of a number of different attitudes, but professionalism means that you do not forget who's working for whom. So that's a different thing.
1: Let's go to one of the pre-submitted questions and then we'll go back to the super chats. Even if I recognize a choice to think, what is the proof that this choice is a matter of free will? and not the result of my nature or the environment. The fact that you
0: asked the question. If you didn't have free will, you couldn't ask that question. You would simply be writing what you were programmed to write and hearing and processing whatever I say in the way you were determined by whatever, your nature and or environment, to hear it and process it the way you do. And you would have no choice. So the existence of a question about which you're going to think and decide presupposes that you control your mind. Now, let me give you a stark contrast. So imagine a guy with a gun in his head. There's a a bad guy with a gun at Joe's head, okay? And somebody comes up to Joe. Of course, you wouldn't do that. You'd run in terror. But he comes up to Joe and says, Joe, do you believe that you are determined and, and uh, run by something? Or do you have free will and can you speak your mind? The guy with the gun writes a piece, writes a note, hands it to Joe. Joe looks at it, reads it, no, I, can, I am entirely free to speak my own mind. And then the person says, well, um, what about the guy with the gun on you? Aren't you afraid that uh, he will shoot you if you displease him? Joe looks at the guy with the gun and he writes a little something, or piece of my saying, oh, no, I'm not afraid at all. I know that this, <laughs> you know, you see how cognitively worthless, anything you're forced to say is, even about whether you're forced to say it. So the presupposition of any objective, we talk about subjective, the the presupposition of any objective, conceptual, rational thinking process is that you are free to look at the facts, that nothing makes you, like, oh, you know how people say, well, I was brought up to think that you shouldn't, not honor the flag, you should honor the flag. Or I was brought up to believe you don't say boastful things about yourself. Or I was brought up to be a Baptist. What's the relevance of that? Either you agree with it and you've got reasons or you don't. I was brought up to be an observant Jew, but I'm not, because it's bad. It's false and destructive. So uh, if you if your environment makes you think what you think, you're like the person with that gun at, at his head, only it's not physical force of uh, the threat of destruction. It's the way your brain is wired or the way your teachers made you think. Uh, so the fact that you're ans- asking the question shows that you are on the premise of you have free will. Now, that's a, uh, an enlightening answer, but let, let me ask you directly. Because the proof of free will, there is no proof of free will. It's an axiom. And the, the argument went through shows that it's an axiom. It cannot be meaningfully denied. The denial presupposes that you have a mind and can can see what's the case. Uh, But the axioms are self-evident to observation. How do I know that there is a world out there? I see it. How do I know that I'm conscious? I see it. So how do I know I have free will? Well, perform a couple of experiments. Let's take an easy one. What topic are we now discussing? Free will. You probably remember free will, right? From three seconds ago, right? You remember that. Okay. Now, what was the the name of your second grade teacher? And did she wear glasses or not? And uh, what did you have for lunch? five years ago in this day. Now, some of those, you know, you could work at, right? You say, oh, my second grade teacher, let's see. And you do certain things. Mary had a little lamb, right? Comes to you automatically. What is 17 times 25? You have to work at it uh someone comes in with a um, huge huge heavy book that you don't know what what on earth is this you have certain emotions what what is that what is he doing where did that come from what kind of is that a book what is it this is strange the emotions the Automatized memories come without effort, but there are a lot of things that take effort. They come down to things that you have to run your mind to do rather than it the mind doing it, putting itself in, in operation in that regard. So much in the mind is automatized and takes no effort. Two times three is didn't take any effort to hear six in your mind but again 17 times 25 i i don't even know what that is but i know a procedure that i can do in my head to figure it out so there are things that take effort and there are things that don't that difference is a difference between what's deterministic given your past history what's automatic not volitional and what you have to do by hand which takes effort and where you can fail at it there's an, well okay there's I could bring up another phenomenon but I think that's enough so that's um that's the introspective awareness the difference between Mary had a little and what is the name of your second grade teacher if you can begin to get that um that's the obvious experience that we all have of things that take effort and things that don't.
1: Let's go to super chats now, and then we'll go back to the pre submitted question. By the way, I have something like 10 more pre submitted questions. I'm going to so, go
0: faster now because those were hard questions.
1: Yeah, and the one that is coming is even harder. So, okay. So, uh, thank you, Marilyn, for, for the clarification and the, and the super chat. So, question now by Stephen. Is it correct to say that consciousness is not, quote, in time due to not being, quote, in space, as time is a measure of relative motion, but is casually ordered thereby? Implications for formation of memories versus concepts.
0: No. Next. So that didn't take long. No. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> consciousness, is, he's right. Consciousness is not in space, but that doesn't mean it's not in time because uh, it, it is in time. I mean, uh, it's one thing to kind of philosophically analyze it. You can't say because time is a measurement of physical change and consciousness is not physical. So its changes are not in time. That's a, a kind of thinking we call rationalism. It's deduction in a void floating in, in the air. The basic way, how do you know time is a measurement of physical things? Why can't it be a measurement of psychological things? But even aside from that, uh, we know that, say, clock ticks are physically caused, regular uniform motion, and they measure time. And we also know that we experience the passage of time. Things happen to us in accordance with those clock ticks. In accordance is not the right word. While that clock is ticking. So I began talking on this show less than an hour ago and more than a minute ago. I'd have to look at my watch to get it more, Precise, but that's a measurement based on physical time of what's been going on in my mind. Uh, Evidence in my behavior, but I see it from the inside because it's my mind. So no, it's a it's an artificial uh, problem. It's not a real problem.
1: One more question from the pre-submitted ones and then back to super chats. Can one consistently hold ideas that, sorry, the ideas that, one, we have free will, and two, the standard of value is the collective. So can we hold these two at the same time? We have free will. No. The standard of value is the collective.
0: No. The essence of collectivism is group determinism, that the individual is is what he is and does what he does because of his group membership in some collective. If you take that away, the whole system of collectivism collapses. And I learned this, uh, maybe this won't be too interesting, but I used to teach college. And one, one year, about 1976, I, I got to teach a course on political philosophy. So I organized it around individualism, versus collectivism. And in reading the collectivist arguments, because I had to give both sides, you know, uh, I came face to face with the cell, the individual's cell on the body of society. And I asked myself, well, what is the difference between the individual's relationship to society and a cell's relationship to your body? And it instantly became Clear to me you don't have to agree with anything that anybody says if you agree it's because that's your choice even the conformist uh, chooses to conform he chooses not to think about it and to go the easiest path okay they must know uh, but um, that's not the relationship of a of a Orga- organism to a cell that in that organism the the demands of the whole dictate what happens well dictates what the what the cell is and what will happen to it insofar as the whole can control so that's you are not in relation to other people the way a cell in your pancreas is to your whole phenotype. it's just not but then the difference is free will you have a mind you you're in charge of that mind you can be and whether you use it or not is up to you okay uh, collectivism can... is determinism collectivism
1: is determinism so question from Kelsey. I'm going to paraphrase Kelsey the second part because syntactically it confused me a bit. So Dr. Binsvanger, what is the essential meaning of objectivism as Dr. Pickoff writes in his upper chapter on objectivity? How does this contrast with, with calling good uh, philosophically or philosophically objective value art as subjective?
0: Um, I don't get that last part. But- yeah, Casey, if you can, if you can, uh,
1: re, if you can repost the last part, we're gonna ask uh, Doctor Binsweiger again. But I assume he means how can how can your judgment be subjective? But let's start with the first part.
0: Okay.
1: What is the essential meaning of objectivism, as Doctor Pickoff writes in his upper chapter on objectivity?
0: That objective uh, objectivity is volitional, free will. Adherence to reality, according with your nature and the nature of reality. So it's neither, see, Ayn Rand discovered that there were three possibilities where all previous philosophers, and I include Aristotle, who is the best, recognized only two. And this is why it's named objectivism. It used to be thought, well, look, either you admit that uh, there's truth and it's absolute, or you say, no, if there's a truth, we don't know it and we live inside our minds and what's true for you. is So it's either you accept the object out there are real in which case your mind becomes passive. Because, or if you say it's active, then it departs from what's out there. So the two categories that were recognized were, you could call it the mystic and the skeptic. The, the, the uh, revelations of an absolute truth to which you must submit, versus there is no truth, there are no answers, it's every man for himself in a unknowable maybe universe, but maybe it's all in the matrix. Right. So those are the only two, and you can go through every philosopher and uh, identify the on the side of the intrinsic, as we call it, or the subjective. Ayn Rand came up with the objective uh, which is the facts of reality as grasped by a volitional consciousness. So it's neither just what's out there with your mind being a nothing, or what's in, in here and in, inside your mind, with what's out there being nothing. And values is a good exa- are a good example of the false dichotomy. The two schools were, well, look, either there is an absolute morality and you just have to do stuff, whether you like it or not. And if you don't do your duty, you're bad. And if you do your duty, well, you may be good if you do certain things, do it from a certain perspective or a certain way. And then the other side like Nietzsche uh, or Hume or the skeptics and just no when we say something good is good all we mean is I like it when we say something's bad all we mean that nah, I don't like that it's called the boo hurrah theory of uh evil and good of morality and Ayn Rand said no there's first a basic choice. Do you want to live? And that's up to you. If you don't, kill yourself. But if you choose to live, reality dictates the right way to live. There's only one right way to live. Now, that one right way leaves options. So when one is you know, kind of equivocal. There's a right way or a set of right ways. That's a better way. a set of right ways and a very large set of wrong ways and the standard for right and wrong there's a the law of causality if you like drugs and you take drugs you're going to kill yourself if you steal and cheat and lie you're going to make war on reality and on every other human being and you're going to be miserable if not dead so uh It's not true that the choice is, um, the two alternatives are don't think, just obey, follow the 10 commandments, or there's no right and wrong. It's whatever you feel like. If you choose to live, you have to use your mind to find out how to live. And the good and the right are that which promotes your survival as the kind of being you are, a rational animal. The bad is anything that in principle destroys that. And that is not subjective and it's not independent of you, like a, a, a commandment from God. If you want to live, you have to do certain things.
1: We got the follow up, Harry, so I'll read it okay. now. How does this contrast to what you explain now? Mm-hmm. How does this contrast with calling philosophically objective value such as good art
0: subjective? I can't parse that question. What, what do colleagues have to so is she saying how does this contrast with the popular view in in the intellectual world that it's subjective? No, I think
1: also Rand, for example, in Capital's Their Known Ideal, says that. There is such thing as objective value, but how you evaluate it in a way is subjective. You cannot say that there's this, uh, uh, for for example- Let me
0: clear that up. I think what you and the question are getting at is the distinction between subjective and optional. Subjective is a bad term. That is a term for a bad thing. It's a good term, quad term, but it's a term for a specific way of behaving where you only think about yourself, not yourself in reality, but you only think about your emotions. That's all that counts to you. And other people's rights or the law of cause and effect, you don't care about it. Like uh, Dostoevsky's underground man said, what do I care if two and two is four or a wall is a wall? I don't like it. I don't want it. Um, So that's subjectivism. The fact that you have to have a career, for instance, is objective. It comes from your nature as the kind of living organism you are. Uh, That does not mean everybody has to be a programmer or everybody has to be a barber. The choice of what line of productive work you will support your life through is personal and optional. It's not subjective. If you choose your career by a whim, uh, you're going to be in big trouble. But it's it's not laid out by the principles of morality because it's different for different people. But there are certain... Principles you can apply in picking a career, picking a line of work, such as it should be challenging to you, but not beyond your capabilities and not too easy. It should be something that you can make a living at. It should be something that um, there are resources for you uh, that you can find to succeed in that endeavor in today's world um generally it should cause you to use your mind in the way that you like to use it for instance i'll give you an example i spent 15 years on my book how we know now that was not 15 years of eight hours a days there were whole years when i didn't do anything on it it was on my mind i was working on it thinking about it but nevertheless is a very long range project. I have a very good friend who had a job as a lawyer where she liked the fact that things came up and she gave a quick answer and disposed of them. Now that's completely optional. There's nothing that says you have to like long projects that don't reach fulfillment for years, or you have to like things that get done in an hour. That's a that's an individual difference. But if you ignore what you like, what what is the way you're used to functioning, and think is your best way of functioning, it, things may go badly for you. So it's not subjective. Good. It's personal and optional, not sub- once you said subjective, you've said invalid, emotionalistic, defying reality. That's what subjective means.
1: And. Our friend sends a further clarification and says, for example, the experience of good art. So I assume subjective means personal, something that has to do with your oh, values. Personal,
0: yeah. See, I, when I say this is what subjective means, I'm applying the objectivist epistemology in saying that. It's not like, well, everybody knows that subjective means what I'm saying. It means not the per- merely personal you have to come to a decision about how you're going to use terms. I use the term subjective to make a contrast with objective. So if it's subjective, it's the destruction of the objective. You could use some other term for that, for the subjective, and and use subjective to mean what I mean by personally objective. Okay, so what a person responds to an art is a, is very idiosyncratic it has to do with that person's sense of life It has to do with the sum of that person's experiences and how that person in particular processed it so not everybody will like the same artworks everybody can come to an objective agreement on what is good art even there it's not easy But you can, uh, but it is never going to be the truth, nor would it be desirable to be true, that everybody has the same kind of reaction to the same artwork. This gets into the objectivist theory of art, which I haven't talked about, but uh, it comes back to what do you mean by subjective?
1: So let's switch gears now completely. What do you think that, sorry, why do you think that artificial intelligence is an invalid term and field?
0: Well, it's not an invalid field. It's a very valid field as it's kind of evolved. In the old days, artificial intelligence was the attempt to make computers that could think. Uh, That's not what it means anymore. And that's invalid computers can't think because they can't perceive they can't perceive because they aren't alive but what artificial intelligence means now is self-improving by human standards uh uh, computation based upon positive feedback loops and uh, that's a very good thing and has Tremendous potential. It's like a, a, a little evolution, little natural selection. Well, it's really artificial selection. The programmer sets the parameters of what he considers the goal. And then the computer processes, uh, tons and tons of data to slowly find its way towards a set of settings that optimizes that goal i've written a program that does that of uh, not that a million other people haven't also done it and it's in the book girdle escher and bach not the actual lines of code but the idea of it uh, and it's a it's used in, in regard in relation to showing how evolution works by natural selection but you can also take it as the archetype of um Artificial intelligence. So yeah, it's a bad term. It's, it's, um, I think it's lost its sting. I don't think anybody really thinks that these systems are intelligent. They think that they are, uh, have positive feedback loops that are, they, so their performance improves towards a goal that's set for them for, uh, by the programmers. So no, I don't have any you know objection i i'm i'm in I'm in favor of it. just the term is used to be very misleading but you know there's a lot of terms like that for stuff in computers uh computer memory well it doesn't have any actual memory computer you read a file the computer reads a file computer shows you stuff computer has a file now if you get All these things are metaphors, but understandable metaphors. If you get literal, the computer cannot even add. Computers do not add. Adding machines do not add. Fingers don't add. You can count on your fingers and do addition by counting up. But your fingers can add. A machine can work gears, an adding machine, and produce a turn of the dial that amounts to the solution to an addition problem, but it doesn't add. Addition is a mental process. So what computers do is they move high and low voltages around according to the uh, wiring of transistors and the uh, hard wiring and soft wiring, so to speak. We interpret it as adding. So like right now I'm looking at Nikos's image on Zoom But it's not an image for the computer. It's a set of uh, RGB numbers. Well, it's not even that. It's a set of illuminated spots and non-illuminated spots, less illuminated spots, where the illumination can be from the red, phosphor, the green, or the blue, and they're different degrees. There's no picture in the computer. That's the way we look at it. There's no, there's no knowledge in books. Please don't quote me on that. <laughs> what there is in books is ink, ink on paper. Now, we can read it and understand it because we set up symbols to mean something. But in terms of the books, it's just ink on paper.
1: Okay, people, thanks so much for the super chats, but don't send any more because we're running out of time. So I'm going to read. These are the last two super chats. And one more question, and then we are then we are done. Okay, is time dilation a rationalistic conception? Where does Einstein and quantum mechanics go wrong? Uh,
0: I don't have a mature answer on that. The young Harry Binswanger was very much against time dilation, and. Uh, there, is, there are definite problems uh, with even reconciling Einstein and quantum. And the physicists will tell you this there's a contradiction between uh, general relativity and quantum, or maybe it's special relativity and quantum mechanics. Uh, the aspect exper- experiments, double delayed choice, reveal faster than light transmission of information, which is supposed to be impossible. Now, they, they say, oh, no, it doesn't really, if you interpret it this way. But it does. I mean, I'm going by people who know more than I do in the field. So it's there's some misconceptualizations that clearly have gone on. They found real phenomena. It's a big advance. Einstein and quantum discoveries of facts are a big advance, but the the interpretation that's been given to them needs philosophical work. In fact, I think mathematics needs that. That's what my next goal is. Infinity, for instance, and precision, both have been completely misconstrued. The whole relation of math to reality has been misconstrued. But I don't have a single... You know line of math that i think as math you know that i would change i don't think the two and two is five no and i don't think that the phenomena that the physicists are looking at is unreal but they just are interpreting it in a philosophically corrupted way so the problem is qua philosophers and to qua very theoretical physics people
1: penultimate question I understand objectivism holds man is born tabula rasa, but nevertheless can have personality traits or innate tendencies or aptitudes. Parenthesis by me, an example would be Mozart that was a talent from the age of three or something. So what are these latter qualities if not some sort of pre-programming, something written on the tabula? Great question, whoever submitted this.
0: Yeah, all right, let's, let's see how I can do it quickly. Um, you have to distinguish the equipment from the content of the equipment, like a computer, okay? So you think of a computer coming out of uh, Intel or uh, Microsoft. Well, Microsoft doesn't mean an Apple computer. Take the Apple computer that is available at your friendly Apple store, the iMac or something, MacBook Pro. Now think of the first Apple computer. Well, the second, really. The Apple II was the first one that anyone saw. The potentialities of the iMac or MacBook Pro are, I would estimate, a billion-fold greater. Just in terms of memory, and uh, they didn't have hard drives, the Mac, the Apple, II. So you you understand that they're fantastically more powerful computers, but that is not to say that that they come out of the factory with uh, data in them. Now it's a little tricky because they do use. PROM, Proms and ROMs where they write data, but even those those ROM chips didn't have data in them until that data was put in them. So, it it, it may be that the uh, the computer of today, when you turn it on and load in an operating system, is like Mozart and the computers back then did not have the capabilities of the Mozart, you know, the genius. They weren't genius level hardware. But that says nothing about the software, the data, and the software that's stored in them. They don't have that until it's put there. So no, the, the, the original statement is wrong about, if you could read it again about personality types. No, there are no inborn personality types. What else did she or he say?
1: Uh, personality traits or innate tendencies or aptitudes.
0: No. You might have, you know, like, is it say you take your, your Mac and you do a lot of uh, Zoom conferencing. That doesn't mean the Mac has an innate aptitude for Zoom conferencing. It is more powerful across the board. So, of course, it can do... Uh, zoom conferencing better, but if you had used it in some other way, like for uh, statistical analysis, you would think, Oh, it has an aptitude for statistical analysis. So um, I think intelligence is pretty general. Now I'd be willing to consider very narrow perceptual aptitudes. I lean against them and I have in my music, since Mozart was brought up, I think that's it looks like some people have a wiring of their brain that's better equipped, makes them better if they use it at music at, at understanding of uh, not understanding uh perceiving and discriminating musical notes and scales. I doubt it. I think it's very early childhood learning. Uh, but it's conceivable that some one little talent, not little, but one defined talent like that would be better. Some brains would be better at it than other brains, and but not at other things where you could have a brain that would be good for uh, processing musical sounds or whatever it is that wouldn't translate into generally more intelligent, more able to do everything. I don't think so, but that would be the closest you can get. But in terms of, you know, like, uh, Einstein or Ayn Rand or Shakespeare or, uh, Bill Gates or anything, those uh, are just some combination of more powerful hardware and what I think looms much, much, much larger better software that is their automatized material because of the choices they made. So early choices have, have leave deep implants and the Mozart obviously was listening to music from a very early age. Incidentally, the Mozart stuff he did at three is not good. I mean, music, people like Mozart will tell you that no, it's, it's not particularly good at all. Doesn't okay. stink, you know, but it's just kind of obvious and <clears throat> twinkle, twinkle, little starish kind of things. That, that isn't literally it. So it's not, you can't imagine him coming out and doing opera at age three. That would be good, you know, and loved by everybody. So uh, basically I'm saying no. Basically, I'm saying it's tabula rasa all the way down. Around the little edges of the little area of music, out you might have some purchase to use against me. But basically, no.
1: Last question. And uh, maybe as a thank you to our viewers, uh, we can organize this episode to put timestamps uh, when we process it. So you can find your question. You can find specifically where the answer is. And again, a huge thank you both to members and to the super chat. Last super chat, which shows the quality of our audience. So the same person who asked this super complicated question on physics now brings it to politics. I like that. How come Ayn Rand was able to end the draft, but not the welfare regulatory state? Both depend on altruism. Also, the understanding of our friend was that it was actually Milton Friedman who ended the draft and not so much Ayn Rand.
0: No, not at all. No. Um, he might've had some good influence, but I don't think so. Um, the story for those who don't know it is that a man named Martin Anderson, or I think just died recently, um, that I had the pleasure of meeting was a Harvard, uh, graduate student who wrote his PhD thesis in political science on urban renewal. And he began as a liberal, thinking this is a wonderful program. And when he looked at the facts, since he was not a deterministic robot, he chose to think and he realized, no, it's a disaster. And he wrote a book called The Federal Bulldozer and either some objectivist discovered him or he discovered objectivist, objectivism and he became an objectivist. I'm, I'm not sure, you know, a, a 100% objectivist, but he was... Uh, and went to some objectivist events. He worked with Alan Greenspan when Alan Greenspan was an objectivist. And his thing after urban renewal was, let's get rid of the draft. He was in the Nixon administration and he headed the draft review panel that came up with the recommendation to end the draft. So you could Google Martin Anderson draft and see what you find. Uh, How come he was able to do that where you can't do so many other things that should be done? I think because there was the Vietnam War, and the left was against the draft, and elements on the right were against the draft, military leaders were generally against the draft. saw draftees as bad, um, making for bad soldiers, which I'm sure they do. You don't wanna be there, you're not gonna be a good soldier. Uh, Also, it was very focused, very, very focused. There's a two year period in every male's life where he was exposed to being Drafted through a definite procedure. He's registered with an agency. He lived in fear. It's really more than two years. It was two years that he would serve if drafted, but you became ineligible 26. So it's eight years. So it's very visible, hated by the left for a number of reasons, good and bad, and not that strongly advocated on the right. So a person from the right, as we used to use those terms back then, Richard Nixon was in a position to do it because being a Republican, he had, and at president, he had not too much opposition on his right. And all of the leftists wanted it. So that's why.
1: Thank you very much, Harry. So th- thanks everyone for your questions. Maybe, uh, by the way, I have many, many objec- uh, questions that we didn't answer. So, we're going to have soon another QA episode. So, again, a big thank you to the Enron Institute for sponsoring and supporting these events and for bringing these people who understand objectivism so much deeper than we, the students, do. And someone like Harry, it's a privilege to have him here. So, thank you very much, Harry, for your energy and your enthusiasm of doing this. And we're going to see you next week. We don't know the topic yet. We're going to figure it out with Razi. I have some ideas.
0: I have Sorry? Some
1: ideas. Okay. We'll talk. Okay. And we're, we're going to see next week. Thanks, everyone. And talk soon. Bye-bye.
0: Bye.